Hi there. I'm so excited to welcome you to the Arthritis Life Podcast, where we share arthritis life stories and tips for thriving with autoimmune arthritis. My name is Cheryl Crow, and I am passionate about helping people navigate real life with arthritis beyond joint pain. I've been living with rheumatoid arthritis for 20 years, and I'm also a mom, occupational therapist, video creator, support group leader, and I created the Room to Thrive self-management program. I am so excited to help you live a more empowered life with arthritis. We're going to cover everything from kitchen life hacks to navigating the healthcare system to coping with friends who just don't get it. Seriously, no topic is going to be off limits on this podcast. My interviewees and I share our honest stories of how chronic illness affects our lives. This includes discussions about mental health, sex, shame, pregnancy, body image, advocacy, self-acceptance, and so much more. You'll hear stories from all ends of the spectrum, from a person who's living in Medicaid remission from psoriatic arthritis to somebody living with severe mobility restrictions and severe pain from rheumatoid arthritis. You'll hear how people manage their conditions in different ways, like medications, mindfulness, movement, social support, work accommodations, and so much more. You'll also hear from rheumatology experts who just get it. We'll dive deep into the science behind chronic pain and what's the latest evidence for lifestyle changes that can help you thrive with arthritis, including exercise, sleep, nutrition, stress reduction, and more. This is your chance to sit down and chat with a friend who's been there. Ready to figure out how to manage your arthritis life? Let's get started. Hi, my name is Cheryl Crow, and I am passionate about helping people navigate real life with arthritis. I've lived with rheumatoid arthritis for 17 years, and I'm also a mom, teacher, and occupational therapist. I'm so excited to share my tricks for managing the ups and downs of life with arthritis. Everything from kitchen life hacks to how to respond when people say you don't look sick, stress, work, sex, anxiety, fatigue, pregnancy, and parenting with chronic illness. No topic will be off limits here. I'll also talk to other patients and share their stories and advice. Think of this as your chance to sit down and chat with a friend who's been there. Ready to figure out how to manage your arthritis life? Let's get started. Hi, Joel. I'm so happy to have you on the Arthritis Life podcast. It's great to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah. Can you start off by just sharing with the audience a little bit about yourself and your relationship to arthritis? Yeah. Um, my name's Joel Nelson. I'm from the UK, a city called Norwich. Um, and I have juvenile idiopathic arthritis, um, sort of developed symptoms around about the age of 10, just for my 11th birthday. Um, and then in my mid-20s, I started getting psoriasis and psoriatic arthritis. Um, but because of the age of onset, it's sort of known as psoriatic-associated juvenile idiopathic arthritis, um, which is, is a mouthful. And and it's going to feel very weird the older I get still using juvenile in the, <laughs> the title. Yeah. So, yeah, so it's pretty much all I've known. Um, I, I'd be pressed to remember a time before I had arthritis. And um, this last two two years, I've sort of um, I've gone very much full circle. I was one of these people that didn't talk about my arthritis. I very much hid it away a little bit, I suppose, embarrassed by it. Um if I had a flare, I kind of cut ties of everything I was doing at that point in time, whether that was sport club or something like that, and, and moved on and realised that living a series of chapters was not a healthy way to sort of live your life. Um, so in 2019, I became a dad and started thinking about how am I as a role model and went completely the other way. And now all I talk about is my, my condition and life with chronic illness. <laughs> No, and that's great. And it, it's really great to, to acknowledge that, you know, a lot of times people say, oh, how did you become so comfortable talking about your chronic illness? And it's an evolution for a lot of people. It's not like you get diagnosed and you're like, I have all these coherent thoughts to share with the world about this. Like it takes time. So yeah, I appreciate you mentioning that. Yeah. And how old is your son? So he was two in January. Oh, wait, so, you just said he was 2019. Like I can do, okay. I should be yeah, able to do no, the math. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We don't need to make anyone else do the math. That's fine. Yeah. So yeah. So, um, so he's uh, coming up to sort of two and a half now. It goes okay. Quickly. <laughs> That's wonderful. I want to start off this episode a little differently than how I normally do it because I've, you know, 
felt like I've known you for a while just through following your story on social media, but you wrote a post on February 28th, 2021, that was called no established cause doesn't mean no problem. And this just like touched me to my core. Like I just resonated with so much of it. And I'm so grateful that you've agreed to read this post, this very heart-wrenching post, like in its entirety um, for the podcast. So we're going to start with you reading it. And then I'm going to ask you some follow-up questions. So yeah, this is no established cause doesn't mean no problem. I'm heartbroken. For over seven years, I've reported neurological issues. Last year, I finally got hope that we would get to the bottom of this miserable set of challenges when my rheumatology team pronounced me active disease-free regarding my arthritis, clearing the way for neurology to examine me in isolation, finally, without anyone palming my complaints off as just my arthritis or diagnosed chronic illness. A year of pain, falls and more. Last year, probably in part due to the pandemic and shielding stresses, one of these episodes, as I've come to call them, returned, and with a bang. With the great news from my rheumatology team, a unique opportunity presented, so I pushed, harder than I've ever pushed for answers in my life. I got through some pretty long and dark days with this hope, hope that I would finally know why my hands and my feet randomly went numb or felt like they were in scalding water, why I would get hit with waves of fatigue that would floor me, caused me to fall downstairs and walk into door frames. Why I embarrass, embarrassingly had toilet accidents that I never felt coming or answers as to why I had to pull over at the side of fields in the middle of nowhere with my crying son as I was suddenly no longer safe to drive. So when I got reassigned to neurology for the third time, I thought this would finally be it. I was slightly disappointed when my neurologist said I didn't have a separate neurology, neur neurology file and that everything was bundled into one. And I mean bundled. I always know when I'm next in line to see the consultant as few rival my piles of notes on the metal clinical tray outside the doctor's door, resembling something as big as a pile of Sunday newspapers and just as frayed and tatty as the previous week's unsold ones, held together by string these days, given there aren't elastic bands large enough. Nobody's joining the dots. The neurologist knew little of my previous concerns, raised over the best part of a decade as these episodes came and went. I found myself deflated as I tried to condense years of experiences into the few minutes of precious time I had with this man, this stranger who so much depended on. The deflation was exacerbated as he clearly picked and chose what he was interested in. For example, the life-altering stuff that was most impacting my daily living, such as the fatigue and the falls, barely registered. In contrast, the numbness and the pins and needles clearly pricking his ears for the few moments he would spin from his default position of back to me taking notes to actually make brief eye contact and listening without multitasking on what I was saying. The repetition, the cramming in of information, the pointing out that I've already had that test numerous times and carefully choosing what to and what not to say for fear that he would lose his interest or I would sound simply crazy from the depth of symptoms and experiences was exhausting. However, hope was restored when he said he would create a separate neurology file, go through all of my notes and press on with a brain MRI, another nerve conduction study, and at this point, he made no secret about the theory, multiple sclerosis or MS, or possibly biologics induced MS. I was shocked. He said it so casually. I had no idea that my arthritis treatment could even do that. He also seemed so sure, sure enough to mention it without any tests anyway. I left after what seemed like a whirlwind few minutes, confused. Back on the scrap heap. Fast forward a couple of months, and as expected, the nerve conduction study test came back clear, just as my last one had several years before, indicating that the issue was central rather than with a peripheral nerve level. Even the clinician conducting the test said beforehand, with those symptoms, this will be clear, you really need that MRI. I had the brain MRI, which unusually was a test I hadn't had before after years of neck and spine MRIs, and even a brain CT scan after one of these episodes previously caused a migraine so severe that they thought I might have had a stroke. I had the MRI and I waited. 
after a painfully long three weeks in which I had managed to convince myself a full 360 degrees of possible outcomes from, oh, I heard nothing in the first week, so it can't be that bad, to it's been too long, it must be complicated. I received one of the most disheartening and infuriating letters I've ever received from a doctor. It read, MRI brain 7th of February 2021 is reported normal. There is no radiological evidence of CNS demyelation. Investigations have not established a cause for Mr. Nelson's symptoms. I've not arranged to review Mr. Nelson, but if he has new or progressive neurology, then please refer. That was it. So after a year of waiting since this new episode begun, just one 10 minute consultation and two tests of which one being a repeat, I am back on the scrap heap to wait for my condition to worsen or for new symptoms to appear on top of numerous others. All because, in my opinion, a doctor had a theory and quite rightly tested for it. However, when that theory came back as false, the investigation stopped. Why? What should have been a good news day, a normal brain scan, was turned into a terribly negative experience. And this has happened, of course, before, in the two or three previous episodes of whatever this issue is. However, the difference back then was that the flare and the symptoms passed. On this occasion, the problem is just as impacting to my life as it was a year ago. And unlike the previous episode around four years ago, I'm a parent now. These issues don't just pose a risk to me. In summary, it felt like a frigid way to deal with another human being. Like breaking up with a teenage lover with the words, it's not you, it's me. It felt like it tells me nothing whilst also having the power to completely shatter my world and destroy my hope. Where does this end? So what will it take for somebody to take a look into my situation again? Speaking with my GP yesterday, it's clear that neurology is now a dead end. He suspects it's more autoimmune or rheumatic in nature anyway, that or some form of complex regional pain syndrome or CRPS, although I've never heard of that personally. So after all of this time, it appears I'm back knocking on rheumatology's door again, which is ironic considering the last time I saw my rheumatologist in the summer of 2020, he mentioned that my condition, sciatic associated juvenile idiopathic arthritis, could continue to evolve until I reached my mid-40s, right before telling me that the issues I was reporting were neurological. As I explained to my GP on the phone, no established cause doesn't mean no problem. Every day this issue impacts my life when active far more so than the arthritis I've lived with since I was a child. Some days I'm scared to drive, have to set trackers on my phone when walking across fields, carry my son up the stairs on my backside when my foot goes numb, take ridiculous levels of pain relief just to get to sleep some nights when the electric shock sensations in my fingertips are too much. So regardless of established cause, there is a clear and obvious problem and I sit here today wondering what it will take for somebody to retake an interest and get to the bottom of this once and for all. A bad fall when I break something? A car crash? To be found face down in the mud by another dog walker? Worse. Wow. Thank you so much for reading that. I cannot imagine how hard that was to live through and then write about. There's so much to unpack. First is, you know, the vulnerability that patients that we face when we are seeing a new doctor in particular, like a specialist, in your case, the the neurologist, um, how you were, you could read his reactions as you were sharing your symptoms with him and seeing what he was responding to and what he wasn't. And can you just share a little bit more with the audience? Like why, why are those interact doctor patient interactions so challenging for us chronic illness people sometimes? Yeah. I, like I like to think I'm quite confident. I've been in that of those sort of rooms most of my life. Um, but even I found that one difficult. So I'm well aware that there are lots of people that, that are not as confident in me in, in, in saying those things. And I think there was a couple of things from that situation that stood out. Um, one was the fact that over the course of seven to 10 years, I've, I've been through that department three times. Um, once I was dismissed, um, once the headache that put me in hospital went away, um, the, the second time I was basically told it was a migraine and the third time was this time around. So I think the first thing that was really disheartening and difficult was that when you walk in and clearly the guy hadn't looked at the file 
before the minute you stepped in the door like you know I I have a lot of meetings at work and before every single one I prep for it it might be five minutes it might be half an hour depending on, on what that that involves so so I think it's really disappointing when if people like myself and I'm sure you as well you you have enough of these consultations you can tell the ones that have read and the ones that have literally yeah. just looked at the top page on the pile of notes that might be this high. So, so that was disappointing. And then the fact that nobody had separated the arthritis stuff from the neurological stuff, because for once, like I said in my article, I was able to be looked at in isolation. It's very rare that I have no active disease, but I'm left in constant pain, um, which is another story. Um, but for once, they couldn't just pin it on your chronic illness. And I think a lot of us that live with um, a chronic illness, just so easy for everything to be attributed to that chronic illness so you feel like you've got to filter the information you give them and, and I felt like that from within about two minutes of talking because it was so clear he was interested in the pins and needles the loss of sensation the I get a feeling that my foot is in a bucket of scalding hot water and everything um, that was the stuff he was interested in whereas in my world the biggest issue was am I going to drop the baby am I going to fall down the stairs again am I going to crash, crash the car should I be driving etc cetera, etc cetera. and and that's really daunting and, and like I say I consider myself to be quite confident with that stuff i know me i know my history you know i've lost count how many times i've had to tell somebody no don't put me back on that drug because i had a terrible experience whatever that might look like um but i'm well aware that there are a lot of people that are not confident enough to do that and rightly so because of experiences like that so i think even with all of my experience of going through those situations when a guy is sitting in the corner of the room with his back to you scribbling away, desperately trying to read your notes as you're talking, you just lose all hope that, um, that, that you're going to get any successful outcome, unfortunately. Yeah. I I've unfortunately have, I can totally relate. And I, I'm curious for, for me, there has also been a layer of wanting, not wanting to be seen as like hysterical or anxious, like, Oh, she's just anxious. She's a hypochondriac. Do you ever worry about that? Definitely. And I think anybody that lives with a form of arthritis or autoimmune disease is well aware that what we feel on the inside isn't always what we can show. You know, I traditionally took a long time to get diagnosed because my inflammation has never shown in my blood, um, doesn't show my white blood cell markers or anything like that. And when I was a child, my joints never blew up they were never red they were never swollen that happens now which makes my life a little bit easier which is a terrible thing to say because but you almost you almost I remember being a 14 year old laying in a hospital bed wishing that there was something I could point to and in some respects getting psoriasis in my 20s made that a lot lot easier because you could show inflammation in action um uh. and, and yeah and it is and it's it's difficult and I think like I sort of probably hinted at in that article um I was cherry picking what I gave him. And, and an example of where that backfires is um, it's not really related, but it is in a little way in that I've recently been diagnosed with a problem with my eyes and I'm now waiting on another referral to see an eye doctor and neurology again, because I went for a routine eye test, told them that I had eye pain when I was moving my eyes and that with some other things they saw under the microscope has set off all these alarm bells that it might be linked to all of this other stuff. But I didn't use that in those conversations because I thought if I mention headache, if I mention eye ache, if I mention feeling nauseous, it's just going to be straight down that migraine route again. And and, and I knew with the falls and, and what was happening with the whole um, loss of balance and stuff like that. I've had migraines on and off most of my life. And it's not involved any of that. It's not involved sitting here talking to you, feeling like my left foot is in a bucket of scalding water. It's not involved right. the electrical shocks in my fingertips. So I withheld that piece of information. And now a year to 18 months later, I'm going back to hospital again for something I probably should have told him. So if that isn't a um, an example of how dangerous it can be, feeling really conscious what information you give them, how limited time you've got, saving the the best bits if you like to try and get their attention it, it unfortunately doesn't paint an accurate picture um and and and, yeah. and therefore i'm no further forward because of it i suppose yeah i i totally totally understand that and it's it 
I've had a few experiences where there's something that I just mention offhand, like, oh, well, also there's this, but what I'm really concerned about is that, like, actually, before I got diagnosed with RA, I was going to all these gastrointestinal people because I had mostly systemic symptoms like unexplained uh, appetite loss and weight loss and fatigue. And I was like, I had this sprained finger. but I didn't really care about my sprained finger. And I was like, well, it's been almost a year that it's been sprained. But uh, anyway, I'm going to GI to figure out my stomach. And obviously the classic presentation of rheumatoid arthritis is not one joint hurting. It's multiple symmetrical, but, um, and then eventually it did progress to that, but it's like, you don't know when you're the patient necessarily, like, even if you're a savvy patient, you just, Um, don't know what is the most important information. So it's a very, like, I feel so much pressure in those kind of appointments. I mean, I just recently had one that I went to a new dermatologist because I was having itching without a rash. And it was the same thing exactly you're talking about where I'm like, this is, I literally feel like I want to rip my leg off. And it it did feel very, very superficial. Like it didn't feel like it was like um, potentially a neuro. It did feel like it was like an allergic something reaction to like, um, soap or something. And I remember this, this desperation because I remember the more I was talking, the more I was like, I can just tell they're looking at the doctors looking at me. Like I'm like a hysterical woman that I'm just like a hypochondriac. And I'm like, I swear, like, I don't want to be here. Like, I don't want to come into your office, like during COVID and expose myself, like for no reason. (laughs) Like I, you know, but it's just, it's just vulnerable is what it kept coming back to like, you're so vulnerable because even if you're the most savvy advocate for yourself and had this illness for so long, the power is not in your hands in that interaction, right? Um, Like for rheumatology, when you're with your doctor for long-term, you do develop that partnership and that there's supposed to be, at least in the US, they talk a lot about shared decision-making. I'm not sure in England if that's as big of a focus, but when you get referred to these specialists where it's like a, it's like an all or nothing deal, you know, that they have this power. So oh, anyway, so much to talk about, but I wanted to move on to the results. So I think people who don't live with a chronic illness might not understand why, like how devastating getting quote unquote, a normal brain scan result would be so what yeah can you expand a little more no, i just feel bad making you talk about this horrible experience yeah, no, that's but fine. <laughs> i know no. people listening are going to feel less alone and and through listening to your story so thank you yeah now it's not a problem and, and and i've never been one i know some people sort of chase a title chase a diagnosis whatever. I've, that's not been my concern my big concern with this is i'm a parent now other people depend on me my son's safety is in my hands. And when my hands are doing these crazy things of going numb out with no warning and electric shocks and this sort of thing. So I'd kind of, after the whole seven years of going backwards and forwards, I'd kind of got to the point where, you know what? I don't care. I'll, I'll accept whatever it is. Just let's know what it is because the important bit for me is treating it. I don't, I don't necessarily worry about what it is, whether it's arthritis or something else. Um, I just wanted to get some sort of um, treatment, um, particularly because in the last year I'd been told I'd been left with um, um, chronic primary pain. Um, it's called something different, you know, based on your location. So you guys might call it something slightly different. Um, but I had a flare that, that the flare went, I'm left in pain. So on top of being in daily pain, having all of these weird symptoms, I just felt like I needed some answers just to get it, get it treated. So, and I think that's where sometimes those of us with chronic illness, we get a bad rap because we're chasing answers, but we're not chasing answers to add another diagnosis to our list, which let's be honest, but those of us with autoimmune conditions, we tend to have two or three. Um, It's because without knowing it, you can't treat it. Like they were chucking me, they might be calling it something totally different, obviously your side of the ocean, but um loads of things like gabapentin and things like this that were knocking me out to the point where I couldn't, I wasn't fit to be a father, let alone get up in the morning and and drive him to nursery or whatever. So, um, you know, I had to, once I got that result, I then remember saying to my wife, well, I need to come off all this stuff then because they don't know what it is that they're leaving it. I'm, I'm taking all this stuff on top of my biologics, on top of my anti-inflammatories, et cetera, et cetera. And, and it's, it's, um, it's making me lose time with my son, you know, essentially, because I was like a zombie sometimes. So I think the, 
you know, and the other element as well that's important in, in, in my personal experience is just that letter. It was two lines long. You know, it maybe sounded a little bit longer when I read it out, but it was two lines long, essentially saying it's clear. It doesn't meet what I was looking for, i.e. MS, and therefore no further action, but send him back. And for me, the key bit was send him back if you get new or progressive neurology. So basically, that's essentially saying to me, this has all got to get worse <laughs> before we can uh, <laughs> we can look at it again. So and and yeah. and again, it might operate slightly differently in the States, but here it very much nobody joins up. So you're you're under rheumatology for this. They say, oh, it's not arthritis. You're under neurology. None of them speak to each other. Mm -hmm. And it's the same as this new referral to the eye hospital I've now got. They're going to have to speak to neurology because they're going to want the same images that's already been taken. And it, it, it's just crazy that you have to be in one pot or another. Why yeah. Why do they have to drop me for then somebody else to catch me? That 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 was the depressing thing. So because it was so much focused on on the MS. And I never really felt like that was the case. You know, that was a complete shock to me. That was all his mm. theory based on, on on the bits I told him. Um, so yeah. so to basically say, it's all clear, come back when it gets worse. That just felt like a, in, in 2021, it felt like a very backwards thing. <laughs> but there we go. Oh, we're going to really break this down because I'm looking at the text right now. The part that actually felt so cold to me, and I don't want to be clear, this is not a case of like medical malpractice. It's actually, like, it's more insidious than that, right? Like this isn't a medical error. This is just literally the, the system as it is operating how it's been designed to operate. It's just an imperfect system yeah. and needs to be better. But like, um, you know, we all live in fear of like medical errors and stuff like that, but this, this is what he's actually doing kind of the standard protocol but the standard protocol is is just it's so inhumane it's saying i have not arranged to review mr nelson that's the part that got me it's like literally saying like i under, i listened to you tell me about how you literally aren't like safe to take care of your child this is affecting every part of your life it's it's debilitating pain symptoms with no known cause and but because it's not ms i'm not gonna do anything about it or not even do anything about it i'm not even gonna make an appointment to explain to you i'm not even gonna take the time to tell you yeah. didn't what... even speak to me face to face that that's the crazy thing like you know to not even <sighs> tell me about what i could do next or give me the opportunity to ask questions that to me is so cold and Again, it's not his fault that investigations are not established a cause. Okay, you did your investigation, you don't know the cause. But then just by, you're on your own, like... And also those investigations were down a very narrow channel as well. So, you know, mm -hmm. you know when you go to rheumatology that they're looking at a whole suite of things. It was the fact that he like, to, to, to be in that room five minutes and he's already banding around... Oh, it could be MS caused by your biologics. Bearing in mind that he could have seen from my face that this was information I hadn't been given about biologics and I wasn't aware of it. So to just randomly drop that in before a single test had been done was just mad. Um, and then obviously, you know, with everything that's gone on the last year, our waiting times over here in the NHS have, have obviously gone through the roof. And so you haven't got a short wait <laughs> for these scans. And then for the, I think the results took four to six weeks from the brain scan to come back. So the whole time you're thinking, well, what does that mean? Um, so yeah, that was the bit that got me is that you, you made a decision bearing in mind at this point you hadn't looked at any of my notes you said there was no neurology file so based on those few little bits of information i gave you and zero tests you were saying we need to rule out ms okay that's fine you've ruled out ms but that's it i can't find any evidence of anything else well we haven't looked for evidence of anything else and and i think yeah that was the difficult bit and and how it works here um is that you literally have to go back to your GP, your general practitioner, your primary care. So, um, and as I sort of allude to in that article, he essentially said, well, I can re-refer you, but you're just gonna go through the same pain and heartache. And he was basically telling me, maybe you need to start learning to live with this. And and that, I could do that, but it still mm -hmm. bothers me that I don't know what I'm living with, I suppose. 
Oh, absolutely. Like I'm always relating things back to occupational therapy. Sorry, because it's like how my, my brain was trained. But in occupational therapy, we learn and are trained in two different approaches. Like one is remedial and that's like fix the problem, make it better. It's like if you're weak, you can get stronger, right? That's remedial. And then compensatory or adaptive is like assuming that this problem is not necessarily, is not fixable at this moment or just taking it as it is, like, let's say you have weakness. Can we compensate for that? Can we, let's say, switch out your everyday items like cups and things to make them lighter so you don't have to carry as much? Like, there's always a possibility of a compensatory or adaptive approach of workarounds, life hacks. And I think, you know, patients should be given access to a skilled provider to help them with that when they're so clearly having ish, like challenges in, in their daily life. So you're not even being given, you're give, being given neither, right? Because the doctors are the ones that some, sometimes can give the remedial, the truly remedial strategy. Like my medication is like pretty much remedial for rheumatoid arthritis in my case, but I still need compensatory strategies for like flare-ups and stuff like that. So yeah, I just, it's, it's just a really distressing experience to not have to not have answers. And I think it's, it's interesting because I've actually also had a brain MRI to rule out MS, but it was, I had started having neurological, um, some issues after a car accident where I also got a concussion. So of course, then there's the confounding variable, but that's when my rheumatologist said, well, you also could develop MS after being on biologics long-term. And I was like, oh, I didn't know that either. So, um, hopefully that's as good awareness for those, not, not to be scared of biologics, but just knowing, you know, knowing the risks, so basically, again, you're left, you're left on your own, but with your GP or primary care, what we call in the U S um, and, you know, so you were able to talk to your GP on the phone. And so what, what did the GP say? Like, you know, just keep driving, keep doing everything you're doing, or did they give you anything else? Like, yeah, no. So the weird thing is, and, and maybe this goes back to how long I've been involved with some of these people and how sort of confident I am in, in, in quizzing them. It was kind of, um, well, what do you want? And, and, and I normally get that question when I get an infection from biologics, like, well, you tell us when you need antibiotics or whatever, which always feels a bit odd. Um, but yeah, so essentially he, he, he said there was a couple of things. He said, obviously I can re-refer you to neurology, but this chat was made it pretty clear that they're not very interested um or we could look at ways of management which was something i then went on and embraced on my own so i went through sort of intensive pain management um therapy group session things um obviously all via zoom in in the current climate um and that really helped and then he said or you can go back to rheumatology but they've already said it's not nothing to do with those and and I think I went through like a full grief cycle with this. So I went through being absolutely raging um, and I wasn't made any felt any better after speaking with him because he was essentially saying, you know, that's kind of, you know, this is above me um, and I don't know what direction to point you in. Um, and I must admit, after a couple of weeks, I did. And the pain management stuff helped. I spoke to a couple of pain, pain therapists and everything. And they they were very good at getting me to see that you've lived with disadvantages most of your life and still thrived and done you know things that most people would make excuses for not trying or doing um so why don't you start framing it like that um and that's what i've been doing so when i think i wrote that in february so literally march april onwards um it's been full-on intensive pain management um disability adjustment training basically getting out of that sort of grief rut that you can get into when you feel hard done by or the world owes you something and why have I got something else I think my my, my big concern however is that obviously I get referred every these are very they're very much like flares I call them episodes of flares they come and go and every time they've come back they disrupt everything like threaten my job threaten my you know my social so yeah. everything because of what happens to me and, and the fatigue as well. I, I've never really got a massive level of fatigue with my arthritis, but with whatever this is completely floors me. Um, so I suppose that's the bit that's in the back of my mind. It's on its way out now. And like I've done the previous two times over the last seven or eight years, I'll shut up about it and I'll crack on. <laughs> but 
I'm well aware that when that comes back again, I'm going to be kicking myself again that I didn't push because this is by far the most I've pushed, the most I've demanded action, demanded answers, and I'm still left walking away from it because the flare subsides, or for want of a better word. Um, and I suppose that's the bit that bothers me is that I'm used to the way my arthritis fluctuates but I'm never ready for when this comes back. You know, the whole collapsing at work, falling downstairs, the, the, just the sheer discomfort of it as well, because it's a very different pain to arthritis. It's like being electrocuted. Um, so, so yeah, so I think that's the only bit that bothers me. I'm in a very positive mindset now, and I've, I've sort of made my peace with it again. But when it comes back with a bang, I'm going to be sitting here again angry, thinking, why didn't I... I demand more um mm. but as pain management frame it you've you've got to focus where to put your energy you know a lot of people talk about spoons um so you know where am I putting my energy and I was wasting so much energy fighting this fighting the system fighting you know random doctors that it wasn't doing my other health conditions any any good and my psoriasis was flaring so um so mm. yeah for now I'm I'm managing it like I do my arthritis, but I'm no further forward than I was last year or seven, eight years ago, unfortunately. Yeah. And in terms of you're no further forward in terms of understanding the root cause. Or, or treatment or, you know, because let's like, say for me, that's that's the big yeah. one. There is literally, I'm not anything they put me on temporarily because gabapentin definitely numbed it. So I could still mm-hmm. feel the shocks, but it brought the level right down, which was the first big flag that, Oh, it's got to be neurological because my arthritis drugs didn't touch it, but this one on a different pain pathway sort of set set up did. So, um, but yeah, so I've just withdrew all of that now, but at least I know there's something there I suppose I can go to, but it doesn't really fit in with having a young family, unfortunately. Hi everyone. I'm interrupting really quickly to remind you that this podcast is brought to you by the Rheumatoid Arthritis Roadmap. It's a comprehensive online education and support program that I created from scratch to help people learn how to live a full life despite rheumatoid arthritis. In the course, you get to learn how to manage everything from physical symptoms like pain and fatigue to social and emotional aspects of living with rheumatoid arthritis. I even cover the logistics of things like how to track symptoms and how to advocate for yourself in medical appointments. To learn more, go to myarthritislife.net. I would love to learn a little bit more about what your experience was like with pain management um, therapy. Who were the kinds of professionals that that helped you? Was it like an individual or group setting? Because I think a lot of people don't even know that pain management is a resource to them. No, no, I'm happy to talk about that because it's something I've, I've been writing about a lot lately because, again, it is that hidden. It, for me, it was a hidden gem, and it seems to get a bad rap because people don't understand it. Like As soon as people talk about group therapy, I think especially for me, you know, a man in my mid-30s, you know, we're not good at sort of processing that, and, and, think, and we have a totally different perception of what it is to what it is in reality. Um, so, yeah, pain management effectively started when this episode um, started back 2019, 2020, but I was literally seeing somebody to be assessed, waiting six months, then maybe seeing somebody else. So it was very slow burning because of, you know, COVID didn't help either. Um, but I was fortunate enough, I think it started either late January or early February, around the time I wrote that article. So I was already in the sessions when I got that news, which which helped massively. Um but the way they'd done it was phenomenal. So it would normally be us meeting up and they try to encourage you to create a, a group of people that will talk after the sessions end. Um, you know, it all depends how you gel. And they, they did a lot of work to make sure it was a right, the right group, which I was really impressed with. So it involved me having a phone consultation with a pain management physio, another one with a pain management therapist. And they're all just trying to understand you know, what you're looking to get from it, et cetera, et cetera, and make sure you're going to fit in with the, the wider group. So it already felt like so much groundwork had been done before we started. But what impressed me is that, and I had no idea of this, I literally just thought it was people sitting in a circle and complaining about how much pain they're in. I'll be brutally honest, you know, that yeah. very much stereotypical, but that is how I thought it was going to be. Um, yeah. But there, for every single session, and it was a nine to 12 week 
um, thing where every single week it was half a day, nine in the morning till midday. And then there was a follow-up call afterwards by a clinician to basically go through your private personal goals. Um, but for every single session, there was a pain management specialist physio, a pain management occupational therapist, a pain, <laughs> a pain management um, therapist. And then every week at some point on one of the sessions, a third party would drop in so we had one week an anaesthetist come in which was really fascinating understanding you know pain and perceptions of pain and he sort of gave us a big talk about how sort of like opiates and things like that and and, and short-term game but no real long-term game and, and that definitely made me see things differently um and then another week we had somebody that was practicing sort of like a form of tai chi um another one that was sort of all around well-being and stress management and it, it was phenomenal and it wasn't just that we got a massive we've got a sorry, massive handbook as well of things to remember um so yeah totally blew my mind totally chain rewired how i thought in a very short space of time um and and it is a a cultural thing you know over here in england everything you know blokes talk around the bar and <laughs> in the pubs and and you don't talk about pain you don't talk about your mental health and and we are all very closed off about it and and it it, it was fascinating to to understand the science behind it, but also the way they put up in this support network. So let's say after each session, somebody would call you and they'd rotate that. So you had the opportunity to speak one-on-one with the therapist or the occupational therapist. Um, And and yeah, it it just totally changed my perception and, and, and very much around that whole, how much energy I was wasting kicking and screaming about the hand I'd been dealt in life <laughs> that I could be putting into managing my condition, being proactive, my son, my family. Um, yeah. And it was, it, it, it totally changed um, how I thought about a lot of things and it came at the right time. <laughs> wow. No, that sounds so wonderful. I, I had um, Dr. Bronnie Lennox Thompson on the podcast um, a few months ago. And she she's an occupational therapist that works in, in pain management in New Zealand. And she also lives with really um, bad chronic pain from fibromyalgia. And she talked about the same thing about how, you know, so often, and maybe I don't, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but as patients, we can get um, in a mentality, understandably, but the mentality is about finding the way to fix our condition or cure our condition, make it go away. And of course, it's it's beneficial for your health and well-being to spend some time doing that, right? Like if I hadn't done that, I wouldn't have never gotten diagnosed with rheumatoid arthritis and then not gotten treatment. Or in your case, you know, um, you know, you if you don't ever if you never acknowledged that you had, you know, psoriatic induced juvenile idiopathic arthritis, then you wouldn't have ever gotten any relief. But at some point, if if there aren't any clear answers that are emerging then the energy, if we had like a hundred energy units and we were devoting all a hundred to finding the remedial cure or path, we could think, wait a minute, what if I just kept 30 of those energy units or spoons and use them to continue trying to find the solution or the answer, but then the other 70 on adapting to life as it is, like what what are the possibilities even with this pain? But it's so unintuitive. I mean. Every episode on here, I end up bringing up my favorite book, um, The Happiness Trap by Dr. Russ Harris, who is a psychologist focusing on acceptance and commitment therapy, also known as ACT. Did they teach any principles of ACT, do you know, in in your program? I'm pretty sure that's in the work, the handbook we got. And it just stands for like making contact with the present moment exactly as, as it is and figuring out if you can commit to meaningful action and take action towards your values or that reflect actions that reflect your values, despite whatever pain you're in, or despite your discomfort, whether it's psychological discomfort, physical discomfort, combination of the two, (laughs) or, you know, multiple layers. I mean, I, I, that's been really helpful for me. It frees, it's been very freeing for me to kind of say, okay, can I, yeah, how can I make the best of this rather than focusing on, um, on how to make it the problem go away. So. And I suppose the other thing that I probably should mention from the pain management stuff as well is, and it might be beneficial to anyone sort of listening to this, is, 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 is it's, it's a useful exercise writing down 
what are the biggest issues with your current situation? Because one of the things I found going through that process is the pain is one element. It was the fatigue, the letting people down, the negative thoughts, the impact on my career, the, the worry about being a good parent, the worry about being, you know, providing finance for the household, all this sort of thing. And, and, and actually, when you dealt with all those other elements, pain really wasn't such a big deal. But obviously, I think human nature, we make it the be all and end all because it's so ever present. Well, in my situation, so ever present. Um, and a really good analogy they had was like, you're a bus driver and all of these thoughts are passengers on the bus. And we even tried it of trying to, you know, you had to answer questions whilst everybody was shouting at you and you realized this is impossible. And it's exactly what happens with me. You know, you've probably seen it on my Instagram or whatever. Um, I have an arthritis problem, but that's the tip of the iceberg. 80% of the issues that follow is what I let that ravel into, you know, with the negative thoughts of mental health and depression or, you know, just general low mood and this sort of thing. So, um, so that's what it really helped me realize is that all I talk about is pain. If anyone says, Oh, what's wrong? My first word is going to be pain, but it's not the problem. The problem is how I then let that make everything else toxic <laughs> in, in, yeah. in, in the conversation. So um, I think that's worth thinking about and, and just scribble down you know, with a little bubble in the middle of, you know, you and then all, all the things that, that you wish you could fix. And you'll realize that pain is probably just a small piece of that. It's, I totally understand that. And like one of the biggest passengers in my bus is the uncertainty that I get really in an in, act, we call it getting hooked or getting it fused with things. So like, you can get overly attached to certain thoughts or um, like, like you mentioned, you know, Oh, am I going to be able to be a good parent? Like in my case, it would be, that's definitely one or like, what am I going to do if it gets worse? How do I know if like, what's going to happen in the future? How am I supposed to plan? Like for a while it was, should we have enough, try to have another baby or not? Like, is that the worst idea or the best idea? You know, so many swirling thoughts. And so, um, and realizing that like some of them are, not solvable problems. Like they're not like, there's not one clear answer. Right. And also that I don't have to give those questions a huge amount of um, energy or attention, like learning how to continue driving where you want to go. Even when your passengers are yelling at you, like stop, slow down, turn around. (laughs) It was, it was amazing how many of us had that fear of failure that made up a big chunk of that passenger on the bus you know that whole I don't want to try something in case I fail or I don't want to do this in case I let somebody down or I don't want to cancel because of x y and and it was these were all things that we were putting on ourselves that nobody actually around us was saying you know and and a good example of that is I will often go off sick from work with a with a pain problem or a mobility issue or whatever that might look like I guarantee you if it's a three-day absence, it turns into a five-day absence because those last two days will be me thinking I'm going to get sacked or, you know, my wife's going to leave me. You know, these are all terrible, stupid, irrational thoughts. But unfortunately, when you've got nothing else to focus on but pain and the situation, your mind goes to those places. And if you can find a way of shutting those passengers out um, and focusing on what's really important, and I'm still working on it, and I think it's probably going to be a lifetime exercise, but but it was just something I wasn't aware of. And I think once you're aware of it, you can start to try and combat it a little bit. One of the things that I liked from, from my therapist perspective was like, what if you can just, um, yeah, you can turn the volume down on them a little bit, but you don't even need to worry about what they're saying. You don't, you, or you don't even need to make them go away or off the bus. They're, they're going to just kind of follow you around. Like another analogy is like, the radio station, like radio doom and gloom or radio, like you're a failure, like playing the greatest hits constantly. Remember that time you messed up? Remember that time you forgot that appointment? Remember that time that you said something really stupid? Remember that, you know, and then there's the positive there. There's what we try to do sometimes is like drown out the negative radio by being like, let's just think positive and let's think about the greatest hits. But the problem is neither one of those is really captures reality and they're actually just not relevant at the end of the day we can just kind of say those are just radio stations playing in the background of my life and i'm just gonna go you know do what's important to me do what's meaningful the best do the best i can despite what's going on with my health and it's just a totally 
freeing experience i think at least and, and i think the important is for anyone else who's sort of like early on in that you will fail you know you will have days where you completely mm. let those those negative thoughts those negative voices win so i think it's just important to know it is an ongoing relationship you're sort of working with there and like you say it's choosing where to put your energy and and i will never get rid of those I can have one day off work and I'm thinking I'm getting sacked, which is just stupid. I'll never get rid of that, but how much I let it bother me and impact. So classic examples, if I go off sick and then I ring in and say, you know what, can I have tomorrow's annual leave? I will go out. I'll have a good time. I'll do stuff with my family. If I, if it's not annual leave, if it's classed as an absence, I punish myself. I daren't leave the house. I daren't go for what is all the things I can do, but heaven forbid I have any sort of fun when when I'm not at work and and that's definitely the side of things I'm getting a lot better at it's like I don't have to punish myself if my health fails me and if there's something I can still do then then do it if I used to be afraid of releasing articles on days I was off sick well why because if I'm laying in bed and I've got a laptop on my lap why why can't I so um so yeah I think it's really important that you know, you're not going to read a book and wake up tomorrow and be a pro at it. You are going to have setbacks. It's going to be one step forward, two steps back occasionally. Um, but I think once you're aware of it, then you can um, you can incorporate it into every day, can't you? Uh, absolutely. And I, I think the audience might be wondering, can you tell them a little bit, what, what is the nature of your work? What kind of work do you do? Okay, so I'm, I'm, I'm proud to work in the NHS. Um, uh, my wife works in the NHS as well, which is on the clinical side. I'm, I'm an IT manager and I actually nice. have my rheumatologist since I was 14. He's still my rheumatologist today. He sat down with my parents um, back when I was 14. They thought I had ankylosing spondylitis. Um, turned out to be the psoriatic sor- element um, bubbling away. Um, and um, yeah, I had the big talk with, with my mum and dad and basically said, you need to get him into a desk job. IT is the future and um, I sort of wow. went from technical to management so now yeah I, I manage people all day and and um, yeah that, that, that can be hard work but um, but I've definitely find that since I've come out and started speaking about my health a lot more I've got a lot more compassion a lot more sort of empathy a lot more um, I'd like to think that's that's really helped improve that but yeah so um so I think a lot of my issues as well which compounded this bad news regarding this um, neurology investigation is you know I had a lot of time off sick last year Uh, my uh, treatments were cancelled appointments were cancelled and I think when you work for the National Health Service over here and you're in your sick bed in the once in a hundred year event that was COVID there's a lot of passengers on the bus (laughs) telling you that you are letting people down and everything else so so that Mm -hmm. definitely made what would have been maybe a couple of months you know poor health into a lot lot longer um but i'm 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 definitely trying to make up for it now but pacing that was the other big thing they taught us in pain management i'm definitely trying to pace and not overcompensate for the good days well and i i wonder because i'm projecting maybe a little bit of myself here but it sounds to me like your core personality and your core kind of I don't know, ethos for lack of a better word. It's like, you're a hard worker. You want to do a good job. You want to be dependable. And this illness through no fault of your own is forced you at times to not be able to be as dependable in your work. Like just to put it bluntly, right? Like you had to take sick leave day when you probably didn't want to, right? You are not the person who's out there like, oh, I'm going to take a sick day, but actually I'm going to go have some fun with my friends. No, like, you are the kind of person that wants to, I don't know, this is, I'm really projecting myself, wanting to do everything right, you know, and, and it can just be so hard when, um, not just related to work, but like social life, when your illness makes you have to say no to things you want to say yes to, or back out of plans last minute. Um, it kind of challenges your sense of self in in a weird way. I don't know. Does that resonate at all? (laughs) Yeah, no, it does. And and I think you'd be hard pressed to find anybody with especially like juvenile arthritis who who went through those experiences during puberty and everything else who are not that type of person. And and you have all these teams like your therapy teams and your pain management and your rheumatologist talking about pacing. But we are just molded in that way that, you know, when you had arthritis as a kid, you had to make use of the good days because your childhood was flashing past you. You know, I'd spend two months in a hospital bed to go back to school and realize like all of my mates had 
new mates and you sort of had to try and find your place in the world and I, I missed an entire year of high school which which was difficult and I think because of the time of my onset over here 11 years old is when you go to high school or sort of the most senior sort of um, school we have I was going through all these investigations and then also having to go from sort of like um, junior school to high school and and try and find my place so I think you you can't help but be stubborn that sort of type of person that does everything 110% and we know we suffer for it and we know we shouldn't <laughs> and we know we should embrace pace and I'm getting a lot lot better at pace and mainly because of becoming a dad you know I can't afford to get because basically what was happening yeah. um Cheryl before I became a dad I was getting free Monday to Friday and spending all weekend in bed you know and that clearly wasn't healthy um and and then you suddenly become a, a father and you realize well I can't that's, that should be my free time my fun time so I'm getting a lot better at that but I think it is just the nature of growing up in and out of hospitals with arthritis which let's be honest back then in the 90s was very much still considered an old person's disease by a lot of people mm -hmm. especially over here um and you're sitting in waiting rooms with 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 pensioners and all the posters on the walls mm. are old people and mm -hmm. and it does make you get a bit old before your time and yeah. you want to prove people wrong and i think that's you've got to constantly be aware of it to put the brakes on because you could be off work for a couple of days and you go back and you go and do five days work in the space of one because you feel like you've got to make up for it and that's totally you know, difficult I, I felt so similar uh, that I was able to really burn the candle at both ends prior to having a child, you know, and you just, there's, you don't have that reliable sleep in those reliable weekends to catch up when you're a parent. So I'm really, thank you for, for sharing about that. Cause um, it's, it's a big transition and I've had a lot of women on the podcast, not as many men. Um, so I think it's really powerful hearing, you know, um, we often think, okay, yeah, pregnancy and having a small child is hard if, you know, for the woman who's had to physically carry the child, but it's, it's really hard for, for the men as well. So, um, I want to, uh, in respect for your time, because with the time zone, it's actually bedtime for you. Um, I want to give you a chance if there's anything we didn't get a chance to touch on already that you wanted to share with the audience any soapboxes you want to get on i welcome all soapboxes <laughs> i think just um I, I know i've touched upon it a couple of times but just for people listening to this and don't be afraid to share your experience in these conversations with with medical people um and and give them the big picture i think i think things are really improving here with the link between physical health and mental health and everything else um but some of my best outcomes from these and they are difficult conversations because you get a very short amount of time to try and pull your heart out and, and get across what the impact is. Um, but don't be afraid to do that. Don't be afraid to explain how it's impacting your family, your relationships, your jobs, your financial security, etc. cetera. Um, and it isn't all about test results, swollen joints and, you know, the obvious bit that hurts. It, 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 it's, it's about far more than that. And the world is now sort of waking up to that. Um, but, but yeah, don't be afraid to do that. And don't be afraid to ask questions and ask to be involved in the decision making, because clearly I had a really bad experience with this one, but it probably does a disservice for all the excellent experiences I've had with my rheumatology team, where I have sat there crying in their room and I have explained to them how I'd lost my job because I was too unreliable and this sort of thing and these mm. bad experiences that we all go through occasionally in life with these conditions. So yeah, mm. just have the confidence to to tell them, you know, not just the cause, but the, the, the ripples it, it causes as well in your life. I love that analogy. And I'm just really grateful that you took the time today to share your story. And I will be including links to your blog and your Instagram in the in the show notes. But for people who are wanting to just hear, can you tell them where to find you? Yeah, so um, you can find most of my writing and ramblings and, and podcasts and everything else on joelversusarthritis.co.uk and that's J-O-E-L versus V-S and then arthritis, all one word. Um, and I'm also on most social media platforms at Joel versus arthritis as well. 
<laughs> no, and there's an amazing campaign. And um, for those of you in the US might not have heard about it, you know, from versus arthritis, a nonprofit in the UK that does a lot of really wonderful advocacy and awareness work. So that's a good, I'll, I'll put a link to that as well. But thank you so much again. Thank you for having me. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of the Arthritis Life podcast. This episode is brought to you by the Rheumatoid Arthritis Roadmap, an online course that I created from scratch to help people live a full life with rheumatoid arthritis, from social and emotional aspects of coping with rheumatoid arthritis to simple physical strategies you can use every day to manage things like pain and fatigue. You can find out more on my website, myarthritislife.net, where I also have lots of free educational resources, videos, and more. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of the Arthritis Life Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Room to Thrive, an educational program I created from scratch to help you go from overwhelmed to confident, supported, and connected in a matter of weeks. You can go through the pre-recorded course on your own, or you can take the course along with a support group. Learn more at the link in my show notes, or you can always go to www.myarthritislife.net. And if you like this podcast, I would be so honored if you took the time to rate and review it. I also encourage you to share it with anyone you know who might benefit from it. I also wanted to remind you that you can find full transcripts, videos, and detailed show notes with hyperlinks for each episode on my website, www.myarthritislife.net. If you have any ideas for future episodes, or if you want to share your story or wisdom on the podcast, just shoot me an email at info at myarthritislife.net. I can't wait to hear from you.